Well, we're in Mark chapter 12 this morning. Get there if you have a Bible with you to Mark chapter 12. One of the more uncomfortable experiences that I'm sure almost all of us have had is to be so confident, so certain about something, even so adamant or cocky about a a position or a claim, only then to be proven wrong in just a few words by someone else, shown to be totally misguided, totally upside down on either an important issue or a stupid little fact that Google can solve for you and your friend beat you to it. That can be humiliating when it's important. It should, in a sense, be humiliating and correcting. I think many of us have tried to work our lives around avoiding that kind of situation. Some only speak to matters that they are pretty much expert in. They have a lot of experience with, or they have academic training in. Others have come to adopt a whole different approach to knowledge and knowing to avoid this kind of uncomfortableness. They relativize truth. They privatize truth and say things like, well, that's fine for you, but for me, or, well, I kind of look at it this way. And some, when confronted with the unavoidable truth that they weren't before believing, simply walk away and whistle and try to pretend like that never happened. It's one thing to be wrong and stubborn about politics or Google facts or economics or even a car purchase, but it's far more important and severe to be wrong about Jesus Christ To be wrong about the scriptures, it's good if we're right about him instead and right about the scriptures and eternity. In Mark chapter 12, we come to an exchange between Jesus and Sadducees, somewhat around these lines of thinking I've been talking about. In Mark's account, we're not told exactly how it ends. We're not told how the corrected party, the Sadducees, respond. Luke does, though. He tells us, Luke chapter 20, that they no longer dared ask him any question. And in Matthew's account, it simply says that Jesus silenced them. This scene, Mark 12, 18 to 27, begins with another gotcha question from a religious party within Judaism. Another trick question for Jesus. Remember, this is just three days before the crucifixion, so you can feel with each mounting debate between Jesus and these Jewish leaders, the tensions rising all around them in Jerusalem. These religious leaders want Jesus out of the way. They'd like to have him arrested, but because of his popularity, they can't. And so they seek to entrap him with theological questions or political questions, which they think might lead to his rejection by the people or his arrest by the officials or eventually his execution. If this is a game of chess, Jesus is the Bobby Fisher who has the brightest and best challenging him all at once. And so he's playing four to five games of chess at once. And the opponents keep making their best move towards checkmate 
And in an instant, in a move, Jesus calmly makes that move, and boom, game over. So just look down in your Bibles and, and see this with me. See, in chapter 11, verse 27, there it was the chief priests and scribes and elders who came and questioned by what authority he does what he does. In chapter 12, verse 13, it was the Pharisees and some of the Herodians who came to ask about whether one should pay taxes to Caesar. What we'll see next week is chapter 12, verse 28 and following. And there, one of the scribes came up to ask him a question about which commandment is the greatest. And then this week, chapter 12, verse 18, it's the Sadducees who came to him. And they come to him with a well-crafted, well-planned, even multi-layered question. It involves marriage, life after death, and heaven. Not a bad move by these religious opponents. After all, what does Jesus know about marriage? They know he's not married. They didn't read the Da Vinci Code yet, so that's how they didn't know, apparently. No, 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 he wasn't married. And what could Jesus know about the end of time, about that realm that's beyond the grave? What does Jesus know? In the late 1980s, Nike ran a bunch of commercials with Bo Jackson. Remember those? Bo knows. Bo Jackson played pro football and pro baseball, and he was pretty good at both of them. And so some thought, and maybe still do today, that he was perhaps the greatest athlete to ever walk the planet. And so these Nike commercials, you know, do Bo knows fill in the blank. Bo knows basketball. Bo knows baseball. Bo knows working out and running and lifting and tennis and all that. Not hockey. Bo doesn't know hockey. They put that in there. But Bo knows a lot. Well, infinitely more, Jesus knows. He knows. And that's what we see in Mark 12. So let's read our passage now. Chapter 12, starting in verse 18. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife shall she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. I'd like to lead us through this passage under four primary headings. The first is what we might call introducing Sadducees and their no-resurrection theology. 
introducing Sadducees and their no resurrection theology. I say introducing because this is the first time that Mark has mentioned Sadducees in his account of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. Because of that fact and because of the fact that we often tend to blur these enemies of Jesus or opponents of Jesus together into one group and just think of them as these religious leaders who were opponents, but they were different. And and they differed from, say, the Pharisees, who you probably know more of and pop up more often in the Bible. Actually, the Pharisees and Sadducees had no love lost between them. They were bitter, theological, and political opponents. Like the Pharisees, the Sadducees were wealthy and snooty, but think of Pharisees with more bling, perhaps. They were pro-Rome, they were highly political, they were proactive for the status quo and keeping the peace. In that sense, they were progressives. On the other hand, theologically, the Sadducees were far less progressive than the Pharisees, The Sadducees' Bible was only the first five books of the Old Testament, what we call the books of Moses or the Torah. They limited their Bible to that and saw anything more than that, let alone what the Pharisees would add to the Old Testament whole with their rules about how to to stay away from the law by keeping a law before the law. All of that they they would have totally dismissed as new and novel and they would have renounced it. They did. But the most distinguishing characteristic of the Sadducees, and the only thing that Mark tells us about them here, verse 18, they say there is no resurrection. Of course, that's not referring to Jesus' resurrection, which, that, which hasn't happened yet in the story that Mark's telling. No resurrection in verse 18 is referring to the final resurrection of the end of time for the living and the dead. It refers to the final judgment, what the Bible calls the new heaven and new earth, what Jesus calls in verse 25 simply heaven, or what we sometimes refer to as eternal life. We Christians believe in this because Jesus believed in this. The Pharisees also believed in this, and most of the Jews in Jesus' time believed in this resurrection. The Sadducees did not. If you grew up in Sunday school, you may have heard that phrase, The Sadducees were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. They were sad, you see. And why would it be sad to not believe in a final resurrection or life after death? Well, I'm sure some still today are quite relieved to get to the point of giving up on that idea, giving up on the idea of a judgment to come before a creator, God. But for those of us who are trained in the Bible, for those of us who, as best we can, try to swim in its worldview, we'd find it quite sad and quite hard to live this life as though this is it, to see death simply as that passageway to nothingness. Even non-Christians today tend to be more positive than that. Even some people who are barely religious or not religious at all, they often come to embrace some idea of a deceased loved one looking down from somewhere yonder, or a deceased loved one now finally getting to do what they love to do all of life, but now for eternity. Or weird stuff like Aunt so-and-so is now a star somewhere 
in the cosmos or a ghost and we need to connect with her. But the Sadducees, they actually celebrated the nothingness of the afterlife. They were more pessimistic than, well, than most of your neighbors and friends and relatives. They almost seemed to take delight in ridiculing the idea of a final resurrection or of any life after death. And you get a taste of that in their question they put to Jesus, don't you? It's a question meant not only to stump him, but to shame him. So secondly, their question meant to stump and shame. We don't need to read their rather ridiculous, drawn-out scenario again. We read it once. The short of it is this. They say, Jesus, let's say a woman eventually goes through seven husbands. When they die, and then when the resurrection comes, who will she be married to? Which of the seven? It's an absurd scenario. Possible, yes, but absurd. And their goal is to demonstrate the absurdity of the resurrection itself, and hence the absurdity of anyone who would believe in the resurrection to come. They're pragmatic people. They're realistic people. They're not polygamists, apparently. They don't think one wife or seven men would be a good thing. They can't conceive how, though, one would be chosen in this scenario and, and not others. How, how would that happen, Jesus? Go ahead, tell us. Is it the first one because he was first? Is it the last one because he was most recent? Is it the one that's the strongest because there's going to be some sort of some sort of feat of strength to get the girl? They're not just realistic and pragmatic, though. They're also relatively biblical. They come to Jesus quoting from the Old Testament. Verse 19. Teacher, Moses wrote for us. And then they go on to talk about Deuteronomy 25. If you look back in your Bible to Deuteronomy 25, you probably have a heading in your English Bible that says something about Laws regarding leveret marriage. Leveret, related to brother-in-laws. This is like brother-in-law's laws. And why would there be brother-in-law laws in the Old Testament? Well, because in the Old Covenant, when a wife became widowed, her husband's brother was required to take her as his wife and, God willing, produce for her an heir, an offspring. By the way, that's what the book of Ruth is mostly about. That's part of the backdrop of that story there. Well, these Sadducees take that idea from Deuteronomy 25. They quote it like it's God's word, which it is, of course, but then they, they build the scenario with a sevenfold death and marriage, death and marriage, on and on it goes. Again, it possibly could have happened, but it is hypothetical. And you can also sense some of their enjoyment in layering up this story one after another, telling it rather slowly, it seems. They're painting the picture of a most extreme, unheard of scenario. If you took a logic class ever, you might be thinking right now that this is reductio ad absurdum. It's an argument to the absurd. You're reducing a situation to the absurd to try to make an argument, and you also learn in logic class that this is called a fallacy. It's a bad argument. It's not necessarily true. 
And yet, on the other hand, fallacy though it may be, it's not an unimportant question. I'm sure there are some in this room who had a former spouse and now you're married again. Perhaps you're even on your third. Whether that's from divorce or whether it's from death and then remarriage matters not. I, I, bet, I bet several in this room have at times wondered, what does that look like in heaven? What are those relationships like? If we're all Christians, we're all going there, and there are three or four of us involved. Oh, awkward, right? <laughs> you thought of it, perhaps. And that's understandable. These Sadducees are sad, you see. They're pathetic because they don't see that as a legitimate question. They're playing chess with Jesus. They're looking to stump and shame him, and they're mocking the whole idea of a resurrection. So what does Jesus say to them? Well, thirdly, Jesus' answer regarding God's power and the Scriptures. Verse 24, Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. There's his outline for what follows in the next few verses. Now, that's a rhetorical question. When he says, is this not the reason? You know, is this possible? It sounds very nice, like he's sidling up to them, like he wants them to get to know it first, or maybe he's even just throwing it out there as conjecture. I don't know, is it this? Seeing what sticks? No, no, no. It's a rhetorical question. No answer was expected. It was a rebuke. It was a mock back at you. You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God, verse 25, for when they rise from the dead. Not if, but when. Not up for debate, not uncertain, not contingent upon your reductio ad absurdum. And Jesus says there are two fundamental reasons why they were wrong. You do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. Before we go on to more specifics about each of those, which Jesus will do, let's just think about them more generally and try to apply them to our own lives right now. Remember that these were religious people. These were scholars. Many of them were priests. They were conservative they used the old Bible. They were those kind of folks. They came to Jesus quoting from that Bible, and they were not theological liberals who denied the possibility of miracles. And yet Jesus says, you don't know your Bibles, even the one you have, which is a reduced one, and you don't really understand God's power. In what ways do you deny God's power? In what ways are you selective with God's word? If God can raise the dead, and he will raise us all, and if he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the promises given to them, and all the miracles that came after them are true, which they are, then is there anything he can't do? I didn't say, is there anything he won't do? We don't know what he'll do but we know what he can do. He can do anything, and none of his ways will be thwarted. We know you can do all things. He can save that friend or family member that you've been praying for and talking to about the gospel for these many years. He can 
do it. He can heal that marriage. He can bring divorcees back together in matrimony. He can bring that faraway, unreached people group to himself gloriously and pervasively. And, and he will do that. He, we know he will bring all nations and tongues and peoples under the lordship of Christ in the end. Even now, he can give you the boldness you need to represent him at your place of work, to speak of him with some modicum of clarity. You feel inadequate, but he can give you the words to say. You can break that habit of sin that's been long-standing, and he can give you a desire to read his, his word, to pray to him more and better than you do. He can. Okay, on to some specifics now of what Jesus says about God's power and God's word and how they relate to the Sadducees' question. You see, God's power is addressed in verse 25 and then the scriptures in verse 26. So here, under point three, here's a, a bullet point underneath. It's that God's power transforms more than the grave. More than the grave. In verse 24, you see right at the end, you know not the power of God. And then verse 25, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So get both points of this here. We're jumping to the second, but it's God's power that raises the dead, and he can and he will when they rise. God has power over the grave. But Jesus almost skips that. And jumps right to this. For when they rise, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. And what I'm saying here is that means God's power to transform is such that it transforms more than just the grave. He does more than just keep us alive forever or just bring us to heaven. And how do we get that? And what does it just mean when it says there'll be no marriage? No marrying and no giving in marriage in heaven. What did you think when I read that? Maybe you didn't know it was in the Bible. If you're a fairly new Christian, you might read that and you go, really? I didn't see that one coming. You, you might have read it and said, oh, I love my spouse. This is not one of my favorite verses. Maybe you went to the extreme of saying heaven couldn't really be heaven unless he or she is married to me in it. Or on the other hand, some of you may have heard that verse read and said, yes. <laughs> I, I don't know if I can go my whole life married to her or him I'm glad to know I don't have to go through all eternity married to him or her. If you thought that, by the way, that's not a good thing, okay? No one should read this verse in their marriage and say, yes. Or maybe you heard that verse read, especially the part about the angels, and you thought, we're going to be angels. We get to be angels? I knew it. I wanted that to happen. I wanted to be Michael Landon someday, and here it is. But let me clear up that last one quickly. No, 
It doesn't say we become angels in heaven. It says we become like angels. And we become like angels in this specific regard. We won't marry. There's no marriage. So it is true. Marriages of this world will not be marriages as we think of them in heaven. I don't think it's right to say, as only a few scholars do say, that when it says one marries and there's none giving in marriage, that means there's no weddings in heaven, but marriages that are already marriages become marriages in heaven when those couples die or when the Lord returns. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. It is correct, on the other hand, to, to see that word marry as referring to a man who's pursuing and landing a woman for his bride. And that phrase, giving in marriage, that's related to a father giving his daughter to a young man in marriage. But surely Jesus is making a much broader point than just that. I mean, if Jesus is only saying here that there's no weddings in heaven, then he's not answering the Sadducees' question about this woman, this hypothetical woman with seven possible husbands. What he does say does answer the Sadducees' question. He's saying it's a needless question, fellas, to ask the question, who will her husband be? It's, it's moot when there are when there won't be marriages in heaven. Now, I confess that my natural inclination to this passage has over the years been one of some small measure of dis disappointment, wondering why God has planned it this way. I really like my wife. I like being with her. I'm sure I'd like the heaven version of her better than the earthly version, and I'm certain she'd like the heaven version of Ryan better than the earthly version. It seems like a match made in heaven, right? <laughs> and yet we very much accept what God's word says about the future of our relationship, even if we sometimes joke that even though we can't be married in the new heaven and new earth, we're still going to hang out a whole lot. And if they ever have to like partner people up for worship something or other, we're definitely partners, okay? <laughs> Heidi, I already called her. She's mine for that, okay? <laughs> Best friends don't count. All right. Yes, on the one hand, I'm speaking tongue in cheek. On the other hand, it's really important for us to realize, isn't it, that, that marriage... And the lack of marriage in a new heaven and new earth is not God denying us something that we would need or we would even want. We don't believe that in the new heaven and new earth that we will be lacking something, missing something, living life out in the new heaven and new earth with rear view mirrors firmly placed backwards wishing we could just go back for another day. No. We don't believe that. We believe it's another world which we cannot now remotely imagine, not in its fullness. We don't have the capacity or categories for what the new heaven and new earth will be. The categories that are fit for this world cannot contain the glory and majesty and beauty and wonder and awe of the world to come. 
So this was one of the major problems with the Sadducees thinking about this life and the next. They assumed that if there was a resurrection to come in a life after this, a heaven, then that heaven would basically be an eternally long version of this same life. I think many Christians think something similar today. I think for many of us, when we think of heaven, we think of it either as ethereal boringness, harps, clouds, the church service to end all church services. It just keeps going. (laughs) Or we think of heaven as basically the same life now with just a few extra bonuses thrown in like no work, streets of gold, and you don't get any colds. Sounds pretty good. But it's not a slightly better, and it's not just a much longer version of what we have now. The Bible's mysterious descriptions and relatively short descriptions of this thing, the new heaven and the new earth, the age to come, the consummation, The mysterious and short descriptions of heaven that we have in the Bible tell us that it's beyond our categories. It implies that this thing is beyond words. This thing is beyond imagination. This thing is even beyond our best illustrations. And marrying and giving in marriage are earthly things that are about as good as it gets. Think about it, a man landing his girl and a father and mother giving their girl to start a family with a man. It's about as good as it gets down here. And yet, this is eclipsed by a higher and greater joy and glory in the new heaven and new earth. Jesus doesn't say, you think skateboards are cool, wait till you see heaven. He doesn't say, you think golfing for four hours a day is cool, what if it were 24 hours a day? I mean, that's from good to better. But Jesus transcends all of that. He takes the greatest thing we have, man landing his girl, Father and mother giving their daughter in marriage on a wedding day. And this will pass because it's eclipsed by a greater glory. Imagine trying to describe to a baby who's still in its mother's womb what it's like on the outside. Imagine the baby, for for argument's sake, has some basic language ability. So you can, you can sort of form sentences and the baby understands, but yet it hasn't been outside of the womb and so it hasn't seen the things that you've seen. It, it, doesn't, it can't really picture what you're trying to describe and you're, you're groping for words and you're trying to illustrate. And, well, did you ever see a chord? Well, imagine lots of chords and you're trying to get to tree, but how do you get to tree from cord on the inside of the womb? You can't. I know it's absurd. But it's really absurd, too, when we think we should get this world that we have not yet seen. 
What we have here in Mark 12, verse 25, where Jesus says there'll be no marrying in heaven is a pinhole peek into a whole world that we can't imagine if this greatest thing we experience here fades away in the background to higher and greater glories. This is merely a flicker, a flicker of what's to come. Jonathan Edwards said, If we can learn anything of the state of heaven from the scripture, the love and joy that the saints have there, it's exceedingly great and vigorous. It's vigorous. Their love and joy is vigorous, impressing the heart with the strongest and most lively sensation of inexpressible sweetness, mightily moving, animating, and engaging them, making them like a flame of fire. You should read more from Edwards on heaven. Just Google that much and you'll find some great stuff. Think about God's original, his originally intended purposes for marriage back at the beginning. What do we know from the Bible about why God gave marriage? Procreation, to multiply and fill the earth. Companionship and intimacy and It's a picture of God's love and his relationship with his people. We see that in Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church. He gave himself for her. In marriage is a picture of that. Husbands loving wives and sacrificing for them is a picture of that. We see in Revelation 21 that one day our marriage to Christ will come to its consummation. Right now we're betrothed and one day will be wedding day. And we will eat and feast and we will be married forever. So it's actually not right to say one day there'll be no marriages. No, one day there'll be one marriage. Uh, it's, it's weird, I know. We're, we're not used to it. It's otherworldly. Imagine that. One day the need for procreation will come to an end because we won't die. One, need, one day the need apparently for marital companionship And even sex will come to an end. And also the need for the picture of the gospel in covenantal marriage love will cease when all of that which it pointed to is received in its fullness. The sign pointing ahead is needed no more when we have it in full. Now, none of this means that when we get to heaven, all memories of the former world will be lost. All relationships will be forgotten. It doesn't mean that we will find each other indistinguishable from others. It's not as though we start over. It's not as though, I suspect it's not as though we relate to everyone exactly the same, with all the same love. And I'm sure we build upon the same memories and experiences we've had down here with others as well, and then more others that we meet and know and, and love and, and worship with. It doesn't mean a lot of things, more than I have time to list today. I'm sure you have questions about what it means for relationships in a new heaven or new earth, but let's stress what it does mean. This means that God's presence in glory will be better than the very best and most intimate of relationships here on earth. Marriage, we will need nothing. We will lack nothing. I think we get a small window into this occasionally some of us do in Sunday morning corporate worship 
You married folks, have you been in worship where God has moved? He has moved in your heart. You have wept. You, you, have, you have met with him. It was sweet. It was transcendent. It was glorious. You were ready to go home to glory. A few of those maybe you've had in your life. I hope. And as you stand next to your spouse, as that's happening, what's happening there? Is it simply horizontal? Perhaps you acknowledge each other. Perhaps you grab hands at some point. Perhaps you put your, your, your hand on your, your wife's lower back or something just to acknowledge that you're there. But f- focus is up there. Not literally up there. He's everywhere. But you know what I mean. Our focus is on God. Most of our married lives and our relationships with others are pretty horizontal. And then occasionally we remember he's there. He's with us. We, we gaze upon him for a moment and maybe we pray, maybe we give thanks. Well, one day those will be flipped. One day he will be all and we will look to others and say, look, look, we will notice that we're together. We'll notice that others are worshiping to him too. But our focus will not be fixed on them, but him. I think that's just a small window that God's given us by his grace. And by the way, how did Jesus know all this? How did he know what he told the Sadducees in verse 25? How did he know there's no marriage in heaven? What verse did he quote? He didn't. What verse could he have quoted from the Old Testament? I don't know of one. I don't know of one. Jesus usually operates that way. Sometimes he just says stuff, and because he's the divine Messiah, he can say it with authority, and it's true. And sometimes, most of the time, he's citing scripture. He's showing others this is true because it says in God's word. Here he just says it. There's no marriage in heaven. They're like angels. He's come from there. He's come from there. He knows what it's like from the inside. He knows. He's been there. He knows Abraham and Sarah and what they're like and, and all the others as well. All right, on to this much quicker bullet point under point number three is that the scriptures everywhere assume eternal life. They everywhere assume eternal life. They denied the power. They had missed the scriptures. And Jesus wants to show them the resurrection's true. Eternal life is true because the scriptures say so. He could have gone to so many places in the Old Testament to prove this to them. Maybe the easiest would have been Daniel 12, 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth, Daniel says, shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. He could have also gone to Job 19 or Isaiah 25. But none of these were in the Sadducees' Bible, quote-unquote. And so he quotes from within their Bible, the first five books of the Old Testament, He quotes from Exodus 3. See in verse 26, As for the dead being raised, Jesus says, Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush? You have to say something like that if you don't have chapters and verses in a Bible, and they didn't back then. You have to say, you know, the story about the bush. It's the burning bush, Exodus 3. That's why there's some benefit in having those numbers there in our Bibles. We get around a little more quickly than the passage about the bush. I love that part of this Bible. 
There in the passage about the bush in Exodus 3, God spoke to Moses saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He quotes this to prove the resurrection is true, that there is eternal life. But how does this work? How does this prove the resurrection at the end of time? Well, in Exodus 3, the burning bush, God there was saying to Moses that he's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, not simply to remind Moses of the stories of old or to tell Moses, those guys had me as God, therefore, if you've heard their name, you know, FYI, uh, there's some credibility there. I'm, I'm kind of with them. And he's not saying that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was their God and now they've died. But he was saying, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is their God. He is their God, rather. He is their God. Even though they long died. And the promises that God gave them did not die with them. When God says, I am the God of, that's covenantal language. So 400 years after Moses, after Abraham, God is reminding Moses about the promises to the fathers in Genesis, and he's saying those promises didn't die with them, but are ongoing. I'm with them. They are of the living, not of the dead, and I'm their God. And so the conclusion Jesus draws, he is not God of the dead, but of the living. Point is, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are of the living. Though they die, they live. Implication, the resurrection's true. Jesus will come again one day, and he will bring all things to their consummation. He will unite soul and body, separated for how many, many years for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and even your loved ones as well. One day. The God of the living, not of the dead, will bring life to these mortal bodies, and we shall be changed. The scriptures everywhere assume eternal life. We should know that. He has put eternity within our hearts. And lastly, we bring this to a close, one conclusion with manifold implications. The conclusion is all of verse 27. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Verse 24, he said, you are wrong. And then verse 27, he said, you are quite wrong. That's the conclusion. Not such that they were wrong or even quite wrong, but he is not God of the dead, but of the living. That's the punch to Jesus' answer. That's the checkmate in this chess game. And that's the point of the passage for us who are reading it. The point of the passage is not so much what marriage will or won't be like in the new heaven and the new earth, but what is the greatest glory of all, that God is the God of the living, not of the dead. From that one conclusion, we can draw many manifold implications. Let me offer just a half dozen or so as I sort of meander through a list. Isn't one of, the one of the implications of this passage that it is possible for marriage to be idealized by those who don't yet have it, 
or don't currently have it. And it's possible to be idolized by those who have it and love it. Be careful. Marriage is good, and marriage is not God. And there is great hope for those of you who are single and don't want to be. There is great encouragement here for those who have been divorced or abandoned or even abused, never wanted to be. God hasn't changed. God is still God. Another implication is that we should note, still today, some things are wrong, even quite wrong. These folks were wrong, quite wrong, not barely wrong, quite wrong. And so we must not be selective with God's word. We must not ever deny or limit his power. And we must not be afraid of gotcha questions or ashamed of what his word says at any point. We should remember at this point in Mark 12 that it's just five days away from here that Jesus will actually show how much God is God of the living and not of the dead. Jesus will rise from the dead and he will live. It should be impossible for us as Christians to read Jesus five days before the resurrection and say, he is not God of the dead, but of the living, and not think of what's to come. The writing's been on the wall. He's been predicting death and resurrection for the last four chapters in a row now. And that resurrection is the culmination of a weekend that begins with death. That death, not just an unfortunate thing that has a happy ending called resurrection, but that death being a payment, a ransom for sin. That's where this is going. We're all in our sins needing his grace by nature. He came to give it. He came to be a payment, a substitute, to die for our forgiveness, to bring us to God. And we know we can believe what he did was successful and true because he was raised in the third day. He is God of the living, not of the dead. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are of the living. And again, so are all saints who have gone from this world. They are with the Lord. To be absent from the bodies, be present with the Lord. What a comfort that is. What a comfort to know that this is what awaits us all. There is a reunion to come, a reunion most of all with him, but we actually meet up with those who've gone before. One day the living and the dead will be united in a resurrection to Jesus. So in 1 Thessalonians 4, we read that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry, a command, in the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with these words. Where saints of old have gone on to be and what's still ahead for them and what we still wait for. Encourage each other with these words of what's to come. Think more about the world to come. One day we will rise and we will be with him. And it's a, it's a far greater glory than we can possibly imagine. The apostle Paul who suffered much said, the sufferings of this world are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed. 
in us. Mark Dever recently said, the frustrations that you experience in this life is God's kindness to show you that this world is not all that is. You will rise, you, all of you, even those of you who are not Christians. You will rise, know that. No, just as Daniel 12 talked about a resurrection to come for the living and the dead, some to eternal destruction, some to eternal life. That wasn't a blip on the Old Testament screen, but Jesus said the same thing in John chapter five. There's coming a day when he comes again for the living and the dead, for the righteous and the unrighteous, and some will go to eternal glory and some will go to eternal destruction. When he comes, how will he come for you? What's on the other side? Are you ready? Christians, lastly, one more implication, perhaps the most important for this special day in the life of our church. The gospel must go forth in this world in light of his glorious death and resurrection and in light of the resurrection to come because there will be a resurrection, some to eternal glory and some to eternal destruction. The word must get out that Christ has a payment for sin. He has a healing to offer. He has good news for the poor. He will care for the brokenhearted if they will flee to him. He will redeem a people for himself from every nation and tribe and people and tongue. And that's why we send people to faraway places where it's scary and hard and where there's potential conflict and persecution. It's because we can let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Would you bow with me? Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, we ask for your help to believe that your kingdom is here, your kingdom is good, your kingdom is coming, and your kingdom will come in its fullness, in your timing and in your ways. We pray. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray your kingdom would spread abroad in this world for your namesake, starting with us. Starting with us, may it be so, as we look to a new heaven and a new earth and a transformed creation in body and soul. We thank you for your promises. We believe them and we say, come. Amen.